Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Lizzie Pook about her historical novel, Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter. Lizzie is a journalist and travel writer, and has won awards for her work. Her assignments have taken her to some of the most remote parts of the world, and inspiration for her debut novel came from one of these trips. In this episode, we talk about how, for Lizzie, setting comes first, how she taught herself the craft of writing without courses, and the best piece of writing advice she's learnt. But first... Here's Lizzie with an extract from Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter. Chapter 1. Bannon Bay, Western Australia, 1896. She will simply leave the cockroach to die, that's what she'll do. Stranded on its back in the coddling wet season heat, its legs will slow, then twitch, then cease to move entirely. Outside, the rising sun lays soft fingers on the land. Above the bay, gathering seabirds soar, and the dirt blushes pink in the gauzy light of dawn. Eliza's eyes flick to the clock on the dresser, its four moons shimmering behind dusty, bevelled glass. Her fingers dance as she runs the numbers in her head. Sixty-one. That's how many days she has slept alone in this bungalow, and with every night the loneliness is built like compacted soot. On her own as she so often is, she has made companions of the noises, the impatient ticking of corrugated iron, the faint click-click-click of a roach's legs on polished jarrah wood. Today, though, a day so humid it's there to be tasted. Today her home will come alive once more. She pulls on boots and smooths down her skirts. Pictures Bannon Bay beginning to stir. The shutters in town cast wide open, merchants with sagging shoulders sweeping the pathways to their shops. The wind will sing down muddy laneways, carrying with it tales of death at sea. People will greet one another with mutters of shell tallies and whispers of the coming storms that mottle the sky like rotting teeth. At the foreshore, the first of the luggers will slump on their sides in the blue-black mud. Later, the remaining fleets will return from months spent pearling. Her father and brother will be with them. Eliza will no longer be alone. Hi, Lizzie. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here with me today. Hi, Chloe. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Can you start us off by giving us a brief outline of the plot of Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter? So Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter is a historical mystery set against the backdrop of the dangerous pearl diving industry in 19th century Western Australia. Our protagonist is Eliza Brightwell, a young 
very strong-willed British woman whose family has sailed across to the remote community of Bannon Bay to set up in the lucrative pearl shell industry. Um, and one day, Eliza's father, the eccentric captain of a pearling lugger, disappears from his ship under suspicious circumstances, and it falls to Eliza eventually to uncover the truth of what's actually happened to him. And as she scours the streets of Bannon Bay and the seas beyond, she uncovers uh, corruption, prejudice, blackmail, and lots of long buried secrets. It's an absolutely fantastic historical novel, and it's so it's so incredibly written. The your description of the place is so evocative. And I know you were inspired to write this story when you were visiting Northwest Australia um, for a research trip. Was that for your, probably for your travel writing? It was actually, the idea was one that actually formed over a few different trips. Um, so the first sort of piece of inspiration came when I was traveling through Australia with my twin sister. We did a road trip through basically the centre of Australia. We drove from Sydney all the way up to Darwin and then we took a flight over to Western Australia. And we ended up in Fremantle at a museum called the Maritime Museum. And tucked away in there was a little exhibition all about a British family of settlers who'd sailed across to Australia and eventually ended up in a place called Shark Bay where they set up in the fledgling pearl diving industry. Um, First of all, I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. I, you know, I didn't know that this really was an industry that existed. But what interested me, particularly with that family, was the matriarch. She was a woman called Eliza. She was called Eliza Broadhurst. And she was um, really interesting, actually. She was an early feminist. She survived shipwrecks and storms. And she her views were quite different to sort of the general um, societal views of, of of the time she was quite a progressive woman she was described as quite a modern woman and so she just stuck in my head for years basically and I had this idea of a, a you know a very strong-willed woman in this sort of setting but it was actually only when I ended up in Broome in the in northwest Australia in the Kimberley region um, that the whole pearl diving thing became a real obsession for me and the setting for my fictionalized town of Bannon Bay really came you know, to life because Broome is um, a small town, but it's one of the most ridiculously beautiful places you can ever imagine. It has like bright red soil and chalky sort of turquoise seas and mangroves. And it really looks like paradise, but it has this very dark history with pearling and the pearl diving industry because and I was surprised to learn when on that first trip to Broome just how dangerous this industry actually was. You know, mm. men were sent to the bottom of the sea and women and sometimes children in the early stages of, of diving. Um, and they would come up against sharks and crocodiles and sea snakes or there'd be storms and shipwrecks or they would um, succumb to the diver's paralysis, which we now know of as the bends um, if they sort of rose too quickly from the seabed and I just became totally fascinated by this sort of hidden part of uh, British Australian history because there were lots of uh, British settlers at, at that time in that part of the world and just the idea of people from all over the world descending on this tiny little sort of red dust town in search of pearl shell and to make their fortune and what it would have been like living in that sort of it would have had a very sort of swaggering wild west feel to it to be mm. in, in that world at that time and so 
those things came together. A very strong old woman, this industry, this part of the world. Um, and yes, it's sort of all started there. This was a long yeah. and lengthy sort of inspiration process. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it wasn't yeah. like a one spark to set it all off. It was like almost pieces of the puzzle coming together for you. It did feel that and it did feel like that. And it was actually over, a, you know, several years that mm. it all sort of came together to form a proper story. And, you know, obviously having the time to turn it into a book was, um, was, was something that I had to wait for as well. So Yeah. I noticed you described it as like an obsession. I think when you start to embark on a project as big as a novel, you do have to become a bit obsessed by it because it takes up so much time uh, to like like your research and everything else to to get to the heart of the novel. Definitely, and exactly with um, historical fiction as well. You need to know everything about that period and that subject that you're writing about. You know whether it's what type of shoes they'd wear, whether it's how a, a hard hat diving helmet works, what air pipes they used and, mm. you know, things like that. But because it was such a, a sort of hidden away part of history, you know, I've sp- spoken to lots of people out in Australia who didn't know about this industry and how sort of dangerous it was. Um, I felt like I was uncovering a secret every day. And that really kept like propelled me through this long old research journey Mm. um and I think you're absolutely right like the best I think it comes through in books as well when an author is really really fascinated by their subject and excited about it it gives uh, a pace to a book and a sort of uh a a verve to it I always find that with my favorite historical fiction you can tell that the author is excited by by what they're writing about and you know as you'll know you have to spend so much time reading that book. You have <laughs> yeah. to read it again and again and again and again as a manuscript, then as a then as a proof, and then you know a final copy. But you know, hundreds of times, it has to be something that interests you. And then you go and then you talk about your book, which mm. is a lovely privilege and a really nice thing to be able to do. But it certainly helps if it's something that you are genuinely really passionate about and interested in, and that you can learn things about as well. Mm. That's what drives me forward as a as an author of historical fiction it's yeah the learning process yeah I was gonna ask you because when you started the project and you started writing and realized the extent of the research you'd have to do were you daunted by it or did was it kind of like the more you uncovered the more you were like nope this is it I'm doing it I think it's the latter the more I uncovered I it it sort of spurred me on to keep going because actually it, it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, if, if you're writing about Victorian London, there's so many resources, mm. so much stuff that you could get completely, completely lost in it. And you could sort of drown in the amount of um, resources that are, that are available to you. But with this, because it is, it was quite a, a unknown part of history, mm there was actually a finite amount of resources that I could get my hands on. And actually right. that was helpful because I could get everything and digest it and then, and then go from there. Um, but yeah, I, I, there are a couple of books that I got my hands on just by chance. You know, there was one book that I picked up in a secondhand bookshop in Fremantle in Western Australia. Thought it looked interesting. It was called Port of Pearls. It was about the first hundred years of, of Broome. I was like, yeah, that, that might prove useful at some point that book changed my life you know it really <laughs> became the most integral part mm. of the 
research. Um, it's by, by a man called Hugh Edwards. Um, and so, yes, uh, when I started, I realized I hadn't done enough research either. Research is an ongoing process. You know, I didn't, I certainly didn't do a load of research, then sit and then just write the whole book. Mm. You know, I, I take the approach where I do some research enough to be able to write a terrible first draft of it <laughs> and only in writing the first draft do you realize what you actually what do you know yeah. yeah which in my case was ships because <laughs> I didn't know that much about ships <laughs> and um, thankfully I had people who, who helped me with that as well but um yeah you only really know exactly what you need to research once you've actually started writing the book I think yeah I want to talk a bit about um Eliza your your protagonist and you've mentioned that you were inspired by that exhibition you saw in the museum that kind of sparked that idea that you wanted to write someone who who had a similar temperament in terms of kind of how modern she is really and and she's very kind of headstrong and um adventurous so I wondered obviously that was one of your initial inspirations but did you always know that you wanted to write this kind of like story that was powered by a young woman and for her story to be central yeah so actually when I was starting to write this book I read a lot of 19th century adventure fiction mm. and that is a macho genre <laughs> <laughs> there are men everywhere in those books you know women don't even really get a look in unless they're a wife or a barmaid or mm. a prostitute or or something like that so I basically, I wanted to write like a feminist Jules Verne book. I wanted to um, write something that was driven by an adventurous female character. But I also wanted to write a book that spoke to how loss and grief can propel us through uh, a story and through life in general anyway. So lots of the characters in this book have suffered loss to a degree. So whether that's loss of a family member or loss of land or liberty or identity, but mm. I wanted those characters to be propelled through the story by their loss. And I wanted that loss to make them active characters rather than passive characters, mm. which is sort of why I think Eliza is so active because she's lost so much and there's a lot on the line. And I really do think that grief can act as rocket fuel in that sense. Mm. You know, where if you've gone through something like that, it almost helps you achieve things that you never would have thought you would be able to achieve before. So that's, that's, that's why she is how she is in that yeah. story. Um, but yes, and, uh, and the Eliza uh, Broadhurst thing is interesting. You know, she, I was inspired by, by, loosely inspired by this character and just what, what a formidable woman um, Eliza Broadhurst was. And actually this week, um, I got an email from Eliza Broadhurst's great-great-granddaughter to say that she had, she had picked up the book and bought it in Australia and she was taking it on holiday and she was really, she was really excited to be reading it and that, Eliza was a very modern woman for her time and she and she was looking forward to reading my protagonist Eliza mm. Brightwell and that was the most surreal and amazing <laughs> that can ever have possibly happened and I just didn't even think that it was a possibility that one of her relatives would would read it and so that was that was very special it's like the biggest honor I think as a writer 
it really really did feel like that yeah <laughs> yeah um you mentioned about how loss is such a big part of the novel and obviously um you know Charles being missing is a central part for Eliza her whole uh, drive in the, in the story is finding out what's happened to him and you mentioned in your acknowledgments um, that your dad sadly passed away and how for you he's still a massive part of the book he's kind of on every page for you so I was wondering how your relationship with your dad kind of informed that connection between Eliza and her father yeah so so my my own dad did die when I was 19 and Eliza in the book is 20 and I think there's you know it's not um hard to draw comparisons between you know me and a girl who's searching for her missing father in a book I when my dad passed away I dreamt about him every night for about five years I remember when it stopped I remember when it stopped happening um I, and I wanted to write a book that reflected somebody being there without being there. So mm. Charles is never, is, well, I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. He's, he's still a big part, the, isn't he? Like he's she, present in her the memories, her dreams, yeah. Exactly. And his diaries as mm. well. And I think there's quite a dreamlike quality to his diaries. They're very much about um, the sea and what lurks beneath the sea. And so mm. I, I wanted to write a book that's that sort of explored how somebody can be present without being present and that's uh, certainly something that you know my experience with with mm. grief was very much like that um and yeah my my dad was um very much into um wildlife and birds and sort of planted that seed in uh you know a seed of love for, for the natural world um in me and my my brother and sister when we were really young and actually it's it's you may not notice it on first reading of the book, but there are birds everywhere in this book. Um, and there are birds that, there are certain types of birds that arrive when certain characters arrive on screen, right. if you use screen mm. as an analogy. Um, and they're very symbolic in the book. And that is something that I've sort of included as almost like a love letter to my own father, because he really was so into that. Um, and yes, I, I, you know, as I mentioned, I wanted to explore how how loss can be a propulsive thing mm. because that is something that I have I have felt has happened in my life as well. You, I found that I take certain risks because I feel that the one of the worst things has already happened, mm. you know, and so I really wanted my own Eliza to have that that sort of sentiment as well. Yeah, so she absolutely. Absolutely has that spirit within her, I think. Um, I feel like I need to go back and read read it again now and notice all the birds. <laughs> this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So your novel isn't afraid to shy away from some of the darker sides of the pearling industry. And Australia at the time, obviously, you've got things like the destruction of indigenous culture police brutality um colonial exploitation and i know that being accurate and sort of culturally respectful was a of huge importance for you and you've worked with um cultural experts can you explain how you worked with them to get get it right basically yeah so so firstly i felt it was really important to tell this side of the story mm. i was going to write about this part of history I had to tell the truth about what, what actually happened. And I felt it would have been disrespectful to have a story about this part of the world that was just populated by white people because mm. that is not, was not the case. So um, in, in the very early stages of pearling, um, the, the, the pearlers relied on forced Aboriginal labour. They, they kidnapped men, women and children and forced them to dive for shell and gave mm. them nothing in return other than you know a pair of trousers and some tobacco um so it was you know it was slavery it, it was a form mm. of slavery um in its early stages um it then 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 the hard hat diving suit was introduced and 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 the the sort of fabric of who made up the cruise changed um but yes yeah, so I, I wanted to tell parts of that story too um which meant that I had to touch on those things that happened and also in my ensemble cast include 
um, some characters that were Aboriginal and also this book has has very very diverse ensemble cast you know there, there are people from all over the world in this cast um, but yeah so I worked with initially um, a a guide out in Australia who was a, a Yarrow man called Bart Pigram and he was just helping me you know I, it was great to just be chatting about the technicalities of diving and stuff like that but he has a history of pearling as well um, and he agreed to come on board as a cultural consultant on the novel a paid cultural consultant um, and Penguin Australia were really helpful with that as well they were really up for that um, mm. to happen and so he basically helped advise on any sort of um, sensitivities um, so he, he was a, a sort of sensitivity reader as you, you might call him um, and he was brilliant and and so helpful and even if it was just things like oh you know he wouldn't have been known of by by his aboriginal name they would have called him a white name mm. um or you know well it's weird to have um this animal or bird in this scene because it is culturally significant or or, or right. something like that so it wasn't just necessarily you know, really top level stuff. It was things that you might never have even considered. Yeah. Um, so that was a real sort of privilege to be able to work mm. with him on that. And he really liked the book and, and he felt it was an important story to tell. And he um, was very uh, complimentary about the sense of place and things like mm. that. Um, and we also worked with uh, the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre who, who did a... Um, consultation on the manuscript as well and 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 they they added to the sort of richness of it they were they were incredible and um you know it was good to be able to include some things in the historical and cultural note at the back that they had mm. sort of um brought up as well so it really was such a great process and there was nothing that they said you can't say that or you can't write yeah, that it was, yeah yeah um, adding to the richness of it and helping working together to tell a story it was really really um I would recommend it to anyone who's uh, interested in writing about things that are perhaps um outside of their own lived experience mm. uh, even if it's just sort of characters in a bigger ensemble cast like mine are um but yeah I'd really recommend it yeah, it's interesting because I know, obviously, you said you were inspired by early adventure novels and uh, sources even from the time, but you just wouldn't get that kind of information from those books. I mean, when you're talking about adventure novels, they'd, they'd be very kind of very white, very sanitised. And and if you're including characters whose voices until now would be completely shut out of fiction or even like non-fiction sources from the time, you just wouldn't get that from your research, would you otherwise? No, exactly. And it's, you know history is written by the people who were successful you know the oppressors mm. the people who yeah. were bracket successful so yes if you read those old novels they're all told through the colonial gaze you know mm. and it's you wouldn't get the perspective of anyone else really so I felt certainly that it was very important just to just to um yeah do that sort of consultation and it's just it's just respectful to do mm. so um, and that was really, really important to me. But actually, what's been really lovely is that um, just this morning I had a message from a woman whose um, great grandmother was um, an Aboriginal pearl diver. She was oh, forced, wow. impregnated and forced to dive for shell because 
the early pearlers believed that pregnant women had an increased lung capacity. And she messaged me and she, it was just so lovely. She mm. said, I'm so excited to read your book and thank you for thank thank you for writing this story and and you know telling the truth and that's that's not why I wrote it but I don't yeah you know, no. I don't need that but it was just so lovely that 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 she got in touch and mm. um you know that that's what I think I don't think we should shy away from something because it makes us uncomfortable and I do think we have responsibility as writers to shine a light on the dark parts of history as mm. well as the interesting and and fun parts of history too and so I just think it's about being respectful and, mm. and striking balance and mm. um you know, consulting with the people who whose experiences you are referring to mm. like you say I think it really adds to the richness of your writing and and of the of the story itself I want to talk a little bit now about your your writing in general because I as I've mentioned I think uh, your descriptions of place and uh, the whole environment is absolutely stunning and I think when readers will read your book that that's one thing that I think every reader will agree with um, and I just wondered whether when you're writing does this imagery kind of come to you in your early drafts or is it something that comes later and it's something you add in afterwards where you kind of think oh I need to describe this now or is it something that it comes as you're writing. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. Um, I think, well, well, before I was writing novels, I was a travel writer. Mm. And, so, and so when you're doing that, you have to try and convey sense of place really quickly and in a very short, you know, space. Um, and so it's always something that I have been um, sort of striving to do well. But I am a really... Um, visual writer in that I literally do print out pictures and plaster my walls with pictures <laughs> of you know so when I was writing this book I had a whole wall filled with pictures of um, the landscapes around uh, the Kimberley region um, divers women at that time what they would have worn sort of you know frontier women in their in their hammocks and their skirts um, <laughs> and so I would right and I would be looking at these sort of visual representations of things and when I was doing the research I was taking video I was um you know taking loads of pictures and stuff like that so actually I would say for me setting comes first like that's always oh, the wow, thing okay. that I enjoy writing most that's mm. what I'm interested in you know if I'm coming up with an idea for a book it's always what setting can I write about and you know different different authors have different things that they focus on they might have an idea for a character or just this uh, a spe specific bit of plot but mine is always setting um so yeah it, it comes it comes first <laughs> which might, might be might be odd to some people but yeah and I just I just I just love doing that because I love you know lots of this book were written well the edits during lockdown we couldn't go yeah. anywhere I my job as a travel writer had basically disappeared overnight you know my career my identity everything that I sort mm. of had plowed years into it went like it did for lots of people um when the pandemic hit but being able to write about this part of the world was these very best sort of escapism and so I think that's hopefully why the sense of place is so rich because 
I just was longing to be there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you can tell. I think you can tell. Um, so obviously, um, like you mentioned, you, you've spent your career as a travel writer, but I wondered whether novel writing was always a dream or was that something that came later in your life? I just never really thought that it was, could be a job. I, I didn't grow up thinking, you know, I loved writing and mm. I loved writing little stories and making little books and, and telling stories like loads of kids do. And my parents were both big readers. Um, they would, you know, my dad would take us to the library and we'd come back with bags, like the library or the charity shop. And we'd come back with bags filled with books. And it was like the most exciting thing. It was like Christmas morning. Um, so I always had that love, but I just didn't think that it was, a, it was never presented as a viable career. And I think that's, I've heard lots of writers say that's the case. You know, I thought it was just rich, men who went to Oxbridge that mm. wrote books you know um and so that's that's why I went into journalism and um spent a long time doing that and then eventually moving into the travel writing stuff and um before the pandemic happened I actually I went I went through a period of ill health and I was diagnosed with chronic illness I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition and basically told to slow down um, and so for my own health, I had to take a step back from that very frenzied life as a, you know, globetrotting journalist um, mm. and ended up with a sense of stillness and just time stretching out in front of me. Um, and I thought the only, the only silver lining to this is going to be if I write this book that I've been thinking about for so long. Um, and so actually it was that ill health that spurred me to actually apply myself to sitting down and writing this book. Um, and I think that's, you know, a nice way to think about it is that it's a good thing that's come out of a bad yeah. situation. Um, and I think, you know, lots of writers have had that with the pandemic too. If they lost their career, maybe they turned their attention to writing a book. And then, you know, that was, that was a dream that came true for them. So yeah, it's all about uh, making the best of things. <laughs> So was Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter your first attempt at writing a novel? You don't have any uh, other attempts in, in hiding away somewhere? It was my first attempt, but I did have a run-up at it that just went in completely the wrong direction. Right. And <laughs> because when you really... <laughs> I actually found the transition between being a journalist um, and being a fiction writer quite hard because when you're a journalist, everything you're writing has happened and is true mm. um and so when you're then faced with a blank page and told to make something up it actually <laughs> feels really really strange so I found that took a while to sort of settle into mm. um and I yeah so I had a first bash at maybe I don't know five seven thousand words or something I hadn't done enough research I didn't know how to write a book um <laughs> I thought I'd be fine because I wrote words for a living but no that's not the case so I I I basically decided to study writing by myself. So mm. that was getting hold of um, brilliant books about the writing process, things like John York Into the Woods and um, Save the Cat as well by Blake Snyder. Um, listening to as many podcasts as I could about the writing process, um, watching masterclasses on YouTube and things like that. <laughs> so it was sort of a, you know, I took it upon myself to study this thing because I can't believe I was so, you know, 
ballsy to think oh yeah I can write a bit no I couldn't I couldn't write a bit I needed to and you know for some people that's doing a writing course mm. or, or something like that and I was too scared to do that so I just you know did this sort of um yeah self-teaching just to just to um just the nuts and bolts of putting together a bit of stuff like that but that also gave me you know I I gave myself permission to focus on it as well. You know, I said, yes, you can do this, give it a bash. And so I took it seriously. I started taking it seriously, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, ended up here. But it's my first, it's my first, my first book, uh, which feels really, I think I just had a good, I just had an idea that I found interesting enough to keep going. Mm. <laughs> I think that it's, was it's, it's great to hear that you are kind of self-taught and that you've studied writing off your own back because, I mean, I've done courses and I know, um, other writers have and I think there's a great benefit to doing them and I think if you want to do a master's or if you want to do a course it's great but it can be done you can just read other great books or study like you say there are so many amazing books out there the two you've mentioned I don't know any writer that doesn't have those so you know I think I think it is possible to uh to do it yourself and it, it's really inspiring to hear you talk about that I was wondering whether you could maybe estimate if you don't know but how long this novel took you to write from that first trip with your sister to the draft you sent to your agent that would have been about oh my god the first trip I took with my sister 12 years mm. but that wasn't full you know I was a journalist yeah, still yeah had this idea percolating for such a long time mm. um, and doing these sort of research trips whenever I could around my very busy other job so that's you know it wasn't that I was focusing on it full-time for that long yeah but yeah god I didn't realize it was that <laughs> long time, I, I, I only asked because I think it's it's really interesting because like you say that idea of the percolation of the the idea and the inspiration something's you don't get an idea and then write it and then it's done and you know it's not always something that happens in 12 months or eight months no. or even two years no. I mean my novel started as a poem in 2014 so oh, it? you know it's it's and it's one of those things that like you said when it becomes an obsession and when you think I've got something here even if you're not doing anything with it and you keep going back to it in your mind and you're thinking how can I make this into something I think yeah. It's important for other writers to, or aspiring writers or novelists to think, if you've got something at the moment that's tapping you at the back of your mind, don't think you have to do something with it immediately. It can come later. Yeah, it will never leave you. If, mm. if it's the right idea for you, it has chosen you. I sometimes yeah. think that an idea is <laughs> like It won't leave you. It won't leave you. And there's there's no rush either well I say that although I am writing a second book and under you know under a deadline and that, that is a <laughs> yeah it's a bit but different I think, yeah a little bit different but I think yeah I think you're right have faith that the right idea won't leave you alone mm. so what was your journey to publication like when at what point kind of in your writing process did you decide to start looking for an agent and what was that like um so I yeah I wrote the manuscript 
gave it to <laughs> I gave it to my mum and my sister to read. They were the first people to read it, and it was mm-hmm. um, that was so nerve wracking. I remember sitting because um, this was during lockdown. My husband and I had moved back in with my mum. We were I didn't have a job. I wasn't you know I was going through this you know not great health, um, and the book was all I was clinging to. Mm. Um, and so there was so much riding on it. And I remember giving it to my mum, who is a very discerning reader, um, and sitting there while she read it. And she looked up from it and I was like, oh my God, she's going to say it's amazing. She said, <laughs> you want me to cross out the typos or? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably the best thing I could have heard. But, um, you know, eventually she did read it and, and she, she, really liked it and she gave me some some great feedback and my sister gave me some great feedback too. I was too scared then to give it to any other actual mm. writer who I felt would just, you know, laugh laugh at me and say, what the hell do you think you're doing? But um, when I had something that I thought was okay, I just, I, I sent it off. I thought, look, let's, let's just see how it, it goes. Because actually as, as a journalist, I had had a couple of agents approach me and say, have you thought, have you thought of writing a book you know mm. let me know but I wanted to go into the slush pile I wanted to know that something someone felt it was good rather than than you know yeah. I just wanted to help do being sort of I guess feel like you've earned it in a way yeah exactly and I didn't yeah so I wanted to go through that process and actually um I sent it to about eight or nine agents I think initially and there was one agent and I put her name at the top almost as a joke to myself you know just as a this is so pie in the sky ridiculous mm-hmm. never gonna and I remember almost like chuckling thinking why are you doing this you're you know <laughs> you're out of your mind this is this is this is silly um but I ended up hearing back from that agent with within about four days, I think it was three or four days. Um, and then a few other agents got in touch too and requested the full and it, it all happened very quickly. I think I saw, I signed with um, my wonderful agent within about a week, which sounds, you know, ridiculous. Mm. I did have some rejections too. Everybody goes through rejections. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I did have some that, that came in early and were like, yes, this, this, there's something here. Um, but really, it was just such, such a surreal experience. You know, yeah, it was during the pandemic. It was, I remember the weather being really hot as well. And it just felt like this weird sort of fever dream that it was happening mm. to someone else. But um, yeah, so that's how I signed with my agent. I was very lucky. I think a lot of it is to do with timing as well. Mm. Your email lands in the inbox of an agent who's looking for something in your genre or who has a personal interest in something that you've written about. Um, or the right person who's sifting through those um, queries, you know, lands on it at the right time. So, so there's definitely luck involved with it, yeah. with it too. But um, yeah, I was fortunate in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking now, I know you've given some great advice already. If you had to give um, three top tips to other writers, perhaps um, advice about writing historical fiction or fiction in general, writing in general what advice would you give um so there was there is one bit of advice that has stuck with me ever since I heard it on a podcast years ago and it was an indie author called Shannon Mayer and she said uh I don't know if I can say this Chloe I'm sorry but your muse is your bitch 
your muse is not something that you should wait to arrive, you know, mm -hmm. you should wait, you can summon it. Um, and I think that is certainly the case with creativity. I think, you know, there's this very nice idea that, you know, we'll wait for inspiration to strike mm -hmm. and wait to feel like, oh, I just, all I want to do today is sit down and write. And those days rarely come for yeah. me. Like <laughs> writing the first draft a real slog, mm -hmm. but that really changed my way of thinking. Like you can sit at your desk and you can decide to summon your creativity and summon your muse and just get the words down. And that's certainly how I approached my first drafts. They're terrible. They're, they're, they're <laughs> awful. I do so many drafts of each book, um, but the first draft is just getting the words down. Just mm. anything, <laughs> seriously, because you can't edit a blank page, but you can make bad words better. So I just like to think of that sort of, mantra whenever I'm uh, whenever I don't feel like writing um so that's one also I'm a real advocate for um some people won't agree with this but picking up books and writing in them you know annotating books that you really love mm -hmm. I mean buy another copy of it if you don't want to you know destroy <laughs> but if you really loved a book go through that book and make a note of the of the parts of that book that are really capturing your attention mm. and why. You know, is there a particular scene that's making you feel something really emotional? Has your you know whole perspective been flipped on its head by one part of that book? And go through and you and and make notes and learn from other authors you love that way. That's certainly something I've done a lot, and it's just a really great way of of uh, you know gauging gauging what works. Um, yeah, the other one I would say is a bit of a silly one. Don't assume you'll be able to change the names of your characters once you've written your book. Because <laughs> you will not be able to do it and feel like killing them off. So, so you know, I've mentioned that I had, I had the inspiration for my main character, Eliza, because of this very impressive, formidable other woman called Eliza. And my name is Lizzie. And I thought, oh, well, I love, I love her, and I love that name, but I can't keep it because it's too similar to my she name. Does to yours, yeah. People think that I'm just writing about myself, and so I thought it's fine. I'll change it later. You won't be able to do that. It will be so hard for you to do that when you're so invested in. Well, I mm. have certainly found when you're so invested in your main character and have love for your main character and you're rooting for them, you you don't, you don't want to change their name. So you know, maybe <laughs> have a think about that before you actually start writing your book. So my Eliza remains Eliza, but she's not me. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. also that's a sign of you've done too many edits because I think when I was on my, like, I don't know, I think maybe just before my copy edits, I suddenly thought, I think I need to change this character's name. And it was like a sign of madness, I think. <laughs> so I think you're right to stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking about readers now, who do you think would love Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter have you got any other novels that you can compare it to I know people hate the make me for asking this question because it it means you have to compare yourself to other amazing writers but I want you to go for it <laughs> well I I I will use what my publishers have used as mm -hmm. comps because then that's not not me saying it um yes uh I mean I love The Mercies by Kieran Millwood Hargrave that's such a good book and um the book has been comped to that and things like The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil. Um, somebody very kindly um, compared it to The Luminaries by Elena Catton, but I think that's purely by virtue of its of its setting and the fact <laughs> that it's a sort of, you know, a 
gold rush but with pearls um and I love a book called Outlawed by Anna North. I don't know if you've um, read it, but it's it's like a feminist Western novel, basically. It's a bit like Godless, the Netflix um, TV series, which is about a, a sort of mining town where all the men uh, get killed in a mining accident. And it's just a group of formidable women running this kind of frontier town. Um, so I'd maybe compare it to those two things as well. But I would just say it's for anyone who wants a bit of adventure, wants to, learn a bit more about this what what i certainly think is a really interesting part of history um yeah anyone who wants to feel like they're surrounded by nature and um and things like that but yeah just a a good adventure story really with yeah. a lot of emotional you know a lot of heart to it as well yeah it's come from a very sort of emotional place within me as well and i know you're working on your second novel at the moment so are you able to say a little bit about what it's about trying to work on my second novel because you know it's, hard. it's actually quite hard well I found it hard to inhabit those two different worlds to mm. be in sort of one state with your first book and be talking about it and uh, you know getting ready for it to be published uh, or, or whatever and then also be trying to write this completely separate book two under a, a contract this time as well so certainly don't have 12 mm. years to be thinking about it um but yes my second book is um historical fiction again and it's similar in that it places a woman at the center of a narrative that might um have normally been male mm -hmm. um it's setting is uh, instead of hot sweltering australia um, it's partly Victorian London and partly um, the Canadian Arctic. So again, a very immersive setting and mm. a very strong-willed woman. And again, touches on things like grief and loss. So similar in some ways and not similar in other ways. But yeah, I actually need to finish the thing. I've got a first draft, <laughs> first draft and now I just need to, you know, tinker away at it for, for a while. Mm. Well, it sounds brilliant. And uh, I wish you all the luck with the writing of it. and with the publication in the UK of Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter. Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. That was Lizzie Pook talking about her historical novel, Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, please consider leaving a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.